1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Native American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Tim Heisey, and I'm a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Brendan W. Rensink, Assistant Director of the Charles Reed Center for Western Studies and Assistant Professor of History at Brigham Young University. He is the author of today's book, Native but foreign. Indigenous immigrants and refugees in the North American borderlands. Dr. Rensick, hello. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in Native American History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Tim Heisey, and I'm a host on this channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Brendan W. Rensick, who is Assistant Director of Charles Reed Center for the Western Studies, and an assistant professor of history at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. Hello, Dr. Rensink. How are you?
0: I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me.
1: You're welcome. It's our pleasure. You recently, um, last June, published Native But Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in the North American Borderlands. Let's talk about that. First of all, before we get into that, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and then also how you came to write Native But Foreign?
0: Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm a historian of the North American West, and uh, I've lived in the West for for most of my life. Um, I was raised up in the Pacific Northwest, um, up on the Canadian border, but I never really uh, was academically or intellectually interested in the region, really. And um, one semester as an undergraduate, the only history course that fit in my schedule was a Western history course, and I was really dreading it. But, but it won me over. And here I am, you know, so many years later. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, you never know. Uh, you, you, have to, you have to be careful when you study history because you never know what's going to grab you. But, uh, but, I'm, but yeah, I've, I'm really excited to be in the field. And it's, it's kept my interest for, you know, almost, uh, almost two decades now. So That's um, wonderful. Yeah. So the, the book um, originally was my doctoral dissertation about a decade ago. And uh, as a graduate student, I, I was of course studying all all kinds of facets of the West. Um, I did some my master's thesis work was a Native American topic and looking at genocide studies and related issues. And when I was looking for a project to dedicate, you know, the next you know, decade of my life to, um, I I thought it would probably be an indigenous topic. And I would become increasingly interested in borders and frontiers and borderlands, and I started looking at some ways in which maybe I could combine these two fields. I found borders really really fascinating because kind of as these you know these peripheral regions on the edges of empire, they're so far removed from centers of power, um they often uh, offer opportunities to the people living there that may not be available to them at the cores of empire. But at the same time, they're often the sites where empires and nations exert some of their most overt, and violent forms of control and regulation. So, people living in proximity to borders can't uh, really can't ignore them. They they sometimes impose a lot on them, but they also sometimes give them new opportunities and flexibility. So, so borders are just a fascinating region where I think some of the most interesting um, history happens. Um, uh, and with with native peoples, um, what I immediately found quite interesting is the fact that. Um, for many indigenous peoples, uh, you know, these Euro-American, be it the U.S.-Canadian or U.S.-Mexican borders were drawn over their their homelands and landscapes and the the border itself has no inherent meaning to them. It's not a part of their, you know, traditional worldview. But once um, we drew it on the line and imbued it with meaning, uh, sometimes native peoples um, used the borders um, uh, to their advantage. You know, they learned that uh, we wouldn't chase them across borders. Um, they learned that th- th- there was power in this line that we had drawn in the sand. And so I was really fascinated by that dynamic of how there's no real inherent meaning to them, but yet they often then do kind of co-opt its meaning uh, to, their, to their advantage. So that's kind of the, the, the really broad background for how these two fields started to intrigue me and led me to start researching what kind of specific ideas I should look at.
1: Absolutely. And you, uh, I mean, uh, common sense and just knowledge of basic Western history, the uh, these indigenous groups that we're talking about today uh, were obviously here before the border was. And so if we were to set a line right in between their their community, um, obviously there would be conflict. But as you said, and as you sh- you show in your book, they used it uh, to their advantage. Um, so let's start with. Um, the history of the Cree Chippewa in the, um, uh, Canadian border. Could you tell us about that and including chief stick as it relates to the, um, the border?
0: Yeah. So, um, so, so the book, my book, um, is it's a comparative history and it compares the experiences of some native peoples in the U S Canadian borderlands with some that were crossing the U S um, U S Mexican border. And, um, in both cases, um, what I was looking at specifically was Native peoples who um, crossed the borders into the United States. We have we have lots of histories, you know, of Sitting Bull, Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce, others who, who used the border to get out of the United States, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And I and someone made me aware of these kind of counterintuitive examples of people who went the wrong direction, right? They came into the United States. And so uh, on the Canadian border, the first example that I'm looking at and uh, whose history uh, the book explores is that of Crees, who are one of the, um, probably the largest kind of ethno-linguistic indigenous group in North America. They stretch from Hudson Bay all the way, almost all the way across the continent. And um, there were groups of Crees who, had you know, started migrating south, who had established um, homelands and economic networks and what, what became Montana. And But then as the United States and Canada created the border and then um, wanted to fill that region with white settlers, they wanted to enforce the borders. So they were no longer okay with these Crees um, crossing. And uh, in 1885, a group of Crees crossed south um, as political refugees. Um, seeking asylum and protection as they were being pr- pursued by Canadian forces, and this was something very, very unique. So that's in, in about 1885. In the introduction to the book, I use uh, or the prologue, I think maybe yeah, I think it's called a prologue. Um, I use this example of Grant Chief Stick is his name, and uh, I just use him as kind of an example of a. We, we I walk through his narrative of growing up in this era of of having uh, come down to Montana um, as refugees and then some of his borderlands experiences. So these Crees are allowed to stay, but they are not um, American Indians. They're not categorized as American Indians by the U.S. government. So there's no treaties, there's no reservations. Um, but they also aren't really um, traditional immigrants, like um, other you know, like European immigrants, for instance. So they weren't really welcomed into Montana cities they didn't necessarily have the economic skill sets to integrate economically and so they were kind of left in limbo and these Crees um, uh, are landless and homeless and they they wander uh, they're forced to wander around Montana for about a decade um, really uh, struggling many dying and having a, a lot of real a lot of hardship um, Finally, Montanans get so tired of it that they pressured the U.S. government to do something. And in 1896, so about 11 years after the Crees had been allowed to stay, um, John J. Pershing, um, uh, who later went on you know, to lead the American Expeditionary Force in World War I, um, him and uh, his cavalry unit of Buffalo soldiers, these African-American soldiers, um, are tasked with rounding Crees up and other um, so-called Canadian or foreign Indians. And they round them up and they deport them. In 1896, um, most of them quickly return. Um, Some tribal traditions like to joke that um, many of them beat the soldiers back to Fort Assiniboine. And uh, after that, they spend the next about 20 years uh, kind of continuing to live this landless, um, this really difficult landless existence uh, with a lot of suffering. And um, eventually in 1916, after a lot of efforts, they joined together with a group of Chippewas um, who come from a little bit farther east and had more established um, homelands on both sides of the border, and um, they're combined, but they also were living in Montana, landless, and so the U.S. government uh, combines them together as what they call the, the Chippewa Cree tribe, and they give them federal tribal recognition, set aside some lands for them to settle as a reservation, and. Uh, and that that's in 1916 so they they kind of finally enter legally enter the category of being american indians as opposed to these foreign indians um so so
1: for that time period those many years not only were they living within the margins of society but maybe even the margins of the margins they were landless they were homeless they were not accepted by um Uh, you could argue, I think, maybe you can help me with this, but other reservation uh, indigenous communities and obviously not the uh, white um, or other uh, community in the area.
0: Yeah. I mean, in these frontier places, there's no, there's no uh, shortage of people living in difficult trying circumstances. Right. Um, But yeah, they were really kind of forced to the margins of the margins Um, in Montana cities. um, You know, often, they would um, they would often lived in or next to the city dumps um, to scavenge for you know resources or food or they would um, set up camp next to the slaughterhouses and um, to try to scavenge some of the offal and the scraps that were thrown out Um, and then they would travel from from city to city Uh, sometimes they were able to find some wage labor you know like cutting wood or doing things for uh, for military fort or for a reservation And so, you know, Mm -hmm. yeah, for, you know, three decades, they, they tried to scratch out an existence, um, moving about, um, they did, many of them had relations on existing native reservations. They had family members, um, you know, these were Crees and they were Chippewas, but many of them had grandparents who were Blackfeet or Crow, um, or others or Cinnabon. I mean, they, these were very kind of multi-ethnic groups. And so they sometimes did, um, Live temporarily with some of their family relations, but we have to remember that those reservations themselves were uh, underfunded and underfed and stressed and short on resources. So th- their their welcome was often short lived, and and there were a couple official efforts to give them allotments. To give uh, early on, Chippewas were given allotments on the Blackfeet Reservation, and and it it just didn't work. Um, mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, ne- never really welcome in, in those Montanan cities, which often kind of led to so much kind of newspaper reporting against them. Um, but then as we get to kind of the 19 aughts and into the 19-teens, um, the, the main Cree chief, Little Bear, and then the main Chippewa chief, Rocky Boy, they, they start organizing and gaining allies and making friends with some prominent white Montanans who then kind of help move their cause forward, try to shift public opinion and eventually start fighting their case in Washington, D.C. to get to get federally re- recognized. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, can can you tell us how the maybe bring us a little bit more into the, uh, the future? Uh, but how did they get their recognition and how quick was it?
0: So it takes quite a few years. Um, the The Crees who came um, south in eighteen eighty five with Little Bear, um, they had they suffered from a really from a lot of prejudice against them in Montana. Um, Little Bear was was known to Montanans. His father, Big Bear, had been a quite a famous Cree chief and had a very bad reputation in Montana. So from even though they were officially allowed to to remain in eighteen eighty five. There was no welcome, Matt. Right? People were set against them. Mm-hmm. So, um, throughout this process, uh, at various times, Little Bear uh, he, he writes to presidents of the United States. He he writes to Congress. He tr- he says we want to become U.S. citizens. Uh, at one point, he um, he offers to uh, have his entire tribe join the military uh, and and to, oh, wow. to to fight in the U.S. Army, um, kind of in, you know in in return for citizenship. Um, and so as he. Various points when they're trying to find solutions or get lands to settle on, uh, the prejudice against them as foreign Indians never really lets up. Um, the Chippewas under Rocky Boy. Didn't have quite as negative of a reputation um, as Little Bear's Cree Little Bear's Cree's did. So um, in the uh, late uh, 19 aughts and then the early 19 teens, there are, as I mentioned, some of these official efforts to settle Rocky Boys Chippewas um, on existing reservations. There is a a, f- a full spread attempt to make a new reservation for them, um, mm-hmm. and it 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 almost passes through, and then at the last minute. Uh, local organizers um, uh, set up big petitions and make a, a big fuss about it and get Congress to back down on it. And um, so so they're left out again. And then even um, with the final creation of, of that joint reservation, it takes a couple years. Um, they had identified some lands. Um, Fort Assiniboine had been decommissioned. And so there were these um, open military lands. And The local um, settlers, you know, they wanted to settle them and do agriculture. And um, one Cree uh, elder had brought the idea up that, hey, maybe we could be given some land at the former Fort Assiniboine. And um, that is put through to Congress. A lot of people who've been following this case for a long time said, yes, here's finally the solution. It's land that hadn't been settled before. It's open. We're about to parcel it up, um, for settlement for, for white settlement anyway. So let's set some aside and solve this long-standing, decades long problem. Um, but even up to the last minute, it's, it's really on the edge, uh, mm-hmm. as you know, some people are just really set against them.
1: Well, and also on a side note, could you tell us how the invitation or the request, Hey, can we get our citizenship if the entire tribe joins the military? <laughs> how was that received?
0: So it's just, it's a, it's a, I've, I found it in a, a, a newspaper article. Um, I think this is probably, Oh man, off the top of my head. I can't remember maybe 19, 1906 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and A newspaper article reported that Little Bear and his Crees had offered to um, help the U.S. Army in its ongoing war that it was fighting. Now, we weren't fighting a war at the time. Um, And so I'm not quite sure what uh, they were referring to. But yeah, it was just kind of just this off-mention. It's the only thing I've ever found about it. Um, And I think that the newspaper had kind of included it kind of as a curiosity, saying, oh, look what what Little Bear and his Crees are up to now. Um, They're trying to join the U.S. military. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's one of those things that you, you always hope you'll find another, another tidbit about, you know, cause it's such an intriguing story. There could be a whole article about that, you know?
1: Absolutely. And, uh, and so, and, in, yeah. And in some of my research with indigenous people and their service from the civil war to world war one and world war two, that time period. And obviously I could be wrong, but that time period, it was not, um, obviously there were many tens of thousands that, um, served in world war one indigenous people, but it was not as, as welcomed as it was in world war two when we needed actual manpower. Um, and it reminds me the, um, The federal recognition is is kind of like the treaties of the 19th century. Uh, For example, treaties have to be um, uh, voted in favor by the Senate and politics and slowness and and when the new president presidency comes in and a new Senate uh, Indian Affairs Committee and it just it seems like a um, a fickle crazy process.
0: Yeah. And for many, it's still going on. There are there continue to be unrecognized tribes today, who are you know tribal communities with long histories as native communities. Um, some of them were terminated in the nineteen fifties and sixties during the, the the federal government went through a big process of terminating tribal relations. Mm-hmm. Um, then they they pulled back on that, and uh, many had to be reinstated. But some are still you know fighting that recognition battle, and uh, it is incredibly uh, fraught and complex. And, um, yeah, there, there's a lot of really great recent studies, uh, on the topic. I mean, just this year, um, I think it was six or seven tribes in Virginia were recognized. Um, which, uh, I think came to, came as a surprise to a lot of people who've been following these things, but yeah, these are ongoing, ongoing struggles for many.
1: It's uh, Clarence Thomas once used a uh, uh, Supreme Court justice in regards to Indian law. It used uh, one time was quoted as saying that it was schizophrenic. Now, I don't really hmm. uh, uh, like that word, how he used it. But um, but there's some truth to that and on one side that obviously we want these indigenous people to be respected their cultures their governments their uh, feelings and experiences but on the other side that maybe the more i dare say libertarian in me sometimes asks why do we need recognition in the first place but that's outside of this conversation <laughs> and, and, and your book uh, could we jump to maybe the i don't want to leave uh the northern border completely alone. But let's jump to the southern border and see their story and uh, maybe do some comparisons.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we have that northern example, um, which, you know, broadly is about natives coming into the United States for economic reasons, then as political refugees, being here, but not recognized as Indians. And then eventually their struggle to be recognized as American Indians. So on the southern border, we have a a very intriguing kind of parallel case um, of Yaquis from uh, the state of Sonora in Mexico. They were, um, um, you know, by the time we get to the mid to late 19th century, the only um, kind of unconquered, still independent indigenous people in Mexico, they had um, fought off. Many uh, in Ghana had full rebellions and wars against, uh, you know, colonial Spain and then later Mexico. And um, these Yaquis in the 19th century, actually even going back into the 18th century, um, were a mobile people. And they uh, uh, ranged out broadly with early uh, traveling with missionaries up into what became Arizona and then later traveling all over as miners. And they became expert um, laborers in both mining and building railroads, uh, another kind of like heavy, um, infrastructure projects like canals, um, and things like that. And in the late mid to late 19th century, this brought a lot of Yaki's up into what became, uh, what, we, uh, what became Arizona and, uh, they're working in mines and many of them were actually the most prized labor force. The um, many miners, they didn't want to hire um, Chinese laborers or white laborers. They wanted to hire Yaki miners. Um, then as we get into the 1880s and 1890s, um, these wars with Mexico start back up. And anytime there's, you know, violence on the land, pe- some people leave. And so that pushes some Yaquis to follow familiar paths, you know, where they have family members maybe and go up to Arizona. Mm-hmm. But then the presidency of, of uh, Porfirio Diaz in Mexico um, Kind of shifted tactics a little bit and called for an all out war of extermination. And that's, that's the word they used um, against the Yaquis to rid um, Sonora and this fertile Yaqui River Valley of Yaquis. Uh, they desperately wanted to develop it, to industrialize it, and modernize the region. And after so many uprisings and wars, uh, the Diaz regime said, um, you know, we won't be able to do that if Yaquis are still in the region. So we just need to exterminate them all. So they, they did. They they killed uh, many. And then one other ones that they captured, they started to deport them, capture them, deport them, uh, and transport them down to the Yucatan, where they were sold into slavery as slave laborers on various plantations, uh, especially Hennikin and Sisal plantations. So in response to the extermination wars, this deportation down to the Yucatan Many Yaquis hit the road and flee northward, again, along those paths that uh, so many of their family members and relations and people they knew had um, followed before, and they cross up into Arizona. Um, There are many Yaqui settlements already in Arizona, especially around um, Tucson, up in the the Phoenix area, other places around mining regions that were already Yaquis, and so they kind of filter into those areas, and they are granted some... Am, somewhat ambiguous level of of refugee status and amnesty. They're told that they won't be deported. Um, and this continues on through the 19-teens and into the 1920s as violence in Sonora flares up again and again and continues. So by the time we get into the 1930s, um, we have well-established Yaqui towns and settlements and thousands of Yaquis many who at this point are now american-born yakis um living in the state of arizona and uh, because they were skilled laborers they were able to um, find employment and able to kind of set up um we probably wouldn't term them as prosperous settlements but as stable settlements which is something that um crees and chippewas were not able to do in montana right um and uh, but this is also the 20s and 30s is an era of uh, new immigration legislation in the United States and anti-immigration laws. And their immigration status gets really complicated for many Yaqui families who maybe have a grandparent living in the house who crossed as a refugee during certain years that gave them kind of official status, you know, where the you know Arizona governor Hunt had said, you know, we won't deport you. Um, and then maybe another, an uncle who crossed about 10 years later, where it's not quite sure if he's... Might be subject to deportation, like during the 1930s. um, You know, all these deportation campaigns during the Great Great Depression, Um, and then maybe parents and children who um, are American born but have no documentation, um, no birth certificates, and uh, when you know, and many other uh, Mexican Americans, American uh, born Mexican Americans were deported during the Great Depression because they didn't have documentation. So they 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 lived in this very uh, precarious and legally ambiguous state for, for decades and decades. Um, um, and uh, eventually they do start, once they feel that the deportation threats are, have decreased, they do start kind of standing up and being recognized as Yaquis, um, most famously, especially in Guadalupe. And then down in Tucson, they host these large um, Easter celebrations with these really unique kind of cultural um dances and, and festivities and ceremonies and things during Easter that became really popular a kind of a tourist attraction Fun. And so they are they are being kind of recognized as Yaquis as Indians. but again the newspapers I say they are Mexican Indians they're not American Indians. Then um, eventually um, I, I kind of trace this history up until the 1960s they start to politically organize they create a nonprofit organization that purchases and has donated land where they can build a new settlement but again not as recognized american indians and then uh, as some of those funds and things dry up in the 1970s they start to politically organize they get the help of some uh, prominent academics and some prominent senators and congressional representatives who then help them make the case for uh, for federal tribal recognition which they get in 1978. So for some of them, kind of a full century after they had started having kind of a a persistent Arizona presence. And this is the story that I try to read in tandem with with the Montana story. Mm. And part of the purpose of the book is to you know, I, well, and actually some at various times I wondered why I didn't just write two separate books, right? Um, I could have gotten two books out of this <laughs> dissertation project instead of one, and it probably would have been a lot easier. But it's in reading these things together that, and this is kind of the whole purpose often behind comparative history, that when you read two things in tandem and you bounce them off one another, it, it raises questions that you may not have previously considered. Um, so one of the things that one of the first questions I had was, we have groups crossing the Canadian border kind of almost in the same general time period as those crossing the Mexican border. Um, There are kind of many of them crossing for the exact same reasons. And yet in Montana, these Cree's and Chippewa's gained federal recognition in 1916, 30, 35, 40 years after being in the state. But Yaki's in Arizona, it takes almost a full century and that was kind of one of the first glaring contrasts and i thought well there has to be some kind of explanation um for 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 this disparity in chronology right Um, and and that's a question that i wouldn't have asked if i wasn't reading them together Uh, and and there i think there's a lot of things that go into it but a key thing that i ended up thinking about a lot in the book was the impact of labor markets um crees and chippewas um early on had been welcomed across the border as fur traders and we actually were trying you know we we were trying to always attract them to come down and trade with us instead of trading with the hudson bay company mm-hmm. right um but once the fur trade collapses and once montana becomes a territory and is trying to attract capital and industry and white settlement um the th- there's no more economic contribution for cree fur traders to make really so they're no longer welcomed um and that was always working against them as they're as they're being forced to wander around the state. They didn't. They weren't miners. They weren't um, farmers. They didn't have you know the economic skill set to contribute to you know kind of the American project of building Montana up, um, which caused them to just have to wander around. Uh, whereas in Arizona, YAKIS had the exact skill set that Arizona wanted. So even though Arizonans may have often been very suspicious of Yaquis because they had this real um, uh, kind of uh, uh, a a reputation, right, of being this uh, uh, warfaring and strong people, Um, they were expert miners, they were building irrigation projects, they were building railroads, they were uh, working in lots of the agricultural sector, you know, picking cotton and and citrus and so forth. And that allowed Yaquis to um, have some stability to establish homes and communities um, to establish churches, and um, to have some kind of stability, which interestingly allows Arizonans to ignore a lot of the real problems that existed for Yaquis uh, for decades. Um, whereas uh, Montanans couldn't ignore Crees and Chippewas when the Crees and Chippewas were um, living on the edges of their cities and scavenging in the city dumps, yeah. right? Um, and so um, I don't think I ever would have thought about labor and thought about those kinds of economic questions um as a unless i was trying to explain what's what's the difference here in this chronology so that's just kind of one example of um kind of the power of doing comparative history and
1: i i think it's great i'm, I'm obviously not a um expert in this but has this ever been done before i mean uh having a dis- dissertations and research and and books uh, on on history of tribes and really of anything is wonderful but i and again I don't know everything just yet. Um, I've never seen anything like this, and so has this
0: been done before? Uh, um, there very little has been done that that does both borders. So there are a lot of really great histories uh, that have been published in the last couple decades, and that are being published right now about you know transnational indigenous peoples and uh, indigenous peoples in the borderlands. As a matter of fact, I. I I think you might if we actually like got out the book lists and made a big bibliography i might even say that maybe even a majority of well maybe not a a very good portion of the borderlands historiography is indigenous topics right um but no one's really done something with both borders before. Um, a book came out, um, I'm trying to remember what year it came out. Um, Katrina Jagadinsky, who's a professor at Nebraska, wrote a book called Legal Codes and Talking Trees, in which she was comparing um, indigenous uh, women and histories in the Puget Sound borderlands, um, kind of up where I grew up, um, and then down in Sonora. And so hers came out, um, I think maybe it came out last year, is one of the first to kind of be pulling in these two different borderlands and transnational regions into conversation. Um, um, and my, my book does that. And I'm, I know there are some other ones uh, coming out that are going to be doing that as well. Um, but it's it's hard to do. No one wants to do it, right? Um, <laughs> well, I look forward to you, you. have to. I look forward to interviewing them. I mean, as you well. have to master uh, to interviewing them as yes, well. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But it's a challenge because you you have to travel a lot for to go to archives all over the place. You have to master, like me, I had to. I won't say that I mastered them, but I had to become really familiar with American and Canadian and Mexican historiographies, um, and and also the indigenous historiographies within those countries. And it's I mean it's one of the one of the real problems is that there's a lot of books written about Crees and a lot of books that are uh, you know, that, that are written about First Nations Crees. Um, but the archive is is segregated along national lines. So there may be a footnote in those books that say, oh, and then uh, Big Bear's son, Little Bear, took some people down to Montana after the 1885 Northwest Rebellion. And that's it. They, they they kind of fall out of the national archives of Canada and the national historiography of Canada and First Nations. But they never really entered the American Historiography or archive, and the same thing goes for Native peoples crossing the U.S.-Mexican border. Um, Our archives, our historiographies, our graduate um, programs—go look at the, um, you know, a lot of the, the catalogs of presses. Um, They're very segregated along national lines, and so doing scholarship that, you know, traverses those lines or tries to bring them together is. Yeah, I could have picked an easier topic. <laughs> well,
1: that's unfortunate because that just line, that imaginary line, not only changed the future for those tribes and the culture that those tribes, uh, whether they wanted to or, or not, kind of over many ge- generations went into, but also the history, as you just said, it, that's unfortunate. But unfortunately, it seems like
0: yeah. that's- But I mean, is. there there is, yeah, but th- there are real differences, right? Natives on one side of the line did have very different experiences than people living ten miles away on the other side of an international border. You know, like the borders do matter, Um, and the histories of these nations often did evolve quite differently. But there are so many places where um, very important historical narratives um, are are taking place. Sometimes arbitrarily over those borders, you know, they just happen to be crossing those borders. Sometimes these narratives are taking place. Um, across those borders because the border is there yes. right and so um it, it's difficult work but it's it, it's a real booming field right now borderlands and transnational history is uh kind of really in vogue at the moment and i think it's because people are realizing that as we're always looking for ways to take familiar narratives and comp not complicate them just for the sake of complicating them but saying how can we look at this at a different angle and come to a a more you know, diverse and uh, nuanced understanding of you know history X, Y, or Z. People are realizing that you know, looking at borders or looking doing comparative history is a really great way to to decenter some of those traditional narratives that become maybe a little bit too stock, a little bit too assumed in their conclusions. Because um, anytime you decenter them and pull something out to the periphery to a border, you realize like, oh, none of those things that I thought were very uh, safe generalizations actually work anymore you know out here in these these
1: absolutely and i I even remember in undergraduate at university of texas el paso the library there at least it was when i was there they've been building like crazy you could go out and read on a park bench and you're a football field away from the border you can the difference between both sides and i read many books about uh, indigenous history of mexico just I don't know. I had my own like imaginative. What was it like when um, uh, Porfirio Diaz came, and and what was it like when the, the indigenous people ran to Mexico to save themselves from whether whether it's the U.S. government or traders or or civilians or whatnot? So it's very interesting, and I'm glad that that is in vogue at the at the moment. Um, let's see. Let's. I want to talk about. You gave us a great um, summary and introduction to these two peoples. It's very fascinating, the Yaqui and their resistance to the Mexican um, uh, authorities and uh, the differences that they've had in in gaining recognition and et cetera and and land. What do you think the – and we can talk about present day and in the past. Are there any – uh, major things that come to your mind when we talk about the variance and how the United States has and continues to uh, deal with their northern and southern borders.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, people often forget, you know, that there is a border to the north, right? <laughs> when you talk about border security or um, someone crossing the border or an incident at the border, um, I think most Americans look south, right? Um, I grew up about ten miles from the Canadian border. And, um, at the crossing there, this is, uh, in Northwest Washington, there's a park on the border called Peace Arch Park. Um, or maybe it's called something else, but there's this, this structure called the Peace Arch. It's this huge white arch and it's in, in this big grassy field, uh, right next to all of the lanes of traffic, you know, going through customs and it's the border and you can just, you can walk across it if you wanted to. I'm sure there's lots of cameras around nowadays, but, um, you know, as a kid, we'd go up there and, they would simply ask if we had any fruits or vegetables in the car, um, how long we were going to be in Vancouver, and and that was it, right? Um, so the Canadian border is not as exciting of a border, perhaps, um, but it's really important to uh, to think about about. What, oh, and there's also you know um, there's also an Alaska Yukon border, the other other U.S. Canada border that um, definitely no one ever thinks about, but uh, <laughs> um, but it's important to think about uh, what's different about how histories have unfolded over. These over these two borders, but also how things happened um, the same. You know, so for instance, um, you know during uh, during the Prohibition era, there's lots of illicit um, mm-hmm. contraband, right? Of you know rum running and uh, transport of alcohol across both borders, and in some ways, in some places, those unfold quite similarly across the Canadian and the Mexican border. Uh, as uh, my book looks specifically at the experiences of these indigenous peoples. It does kind of reveal in some interesting ways um, and not always necessarily in explicit ways, but um, how Americans viewed um, the inhabitants across the line quite differently. So when Americans looked North um, to Canada, looked across the line and looked at Canadians and looked at Canadian Indians um, they saw two very different populations, right? And if they were going to have some of them come down and live in Montana, you know, uh, what a Canadian immigrant would look like, uh, I mean, physically look like, but also what they would come down and do and contribute to Montana was viewed, I mean, just in black and white terms with what a Canadian Indian meant and what a Canadian Indian was and whether a Canadian Indian belonged at all, right? Um, Whereas when many Americans looked uh, at the southern border and when Arizonans, Looked at Mexicans versus Mexican Indians, um, we see in some of the sources, and again, they never quite say in explicit terms, but um, you can tell that they don't view the two as all that different. Um, so, um, a Mexican, um, a we'll say a non-indigenous Mexican, even if you know somewhere in their past they have some indigenous heritage, um, as a non-indigenous Mexican crosses the border into Arizona, you know, at a certain time period. Um, perhaps, you know, to come work or as a laborer or, you know, as as an immigrant of some kind. Um, And if they uh, saw a Mexican Indian, say a Yaqui cross, um, Americans may not have viewed them differently at all. And that was something that I I don't think I would have thought about either if I had not been thinking of these stories together. Now, Interestingly, um, and somewhat ironically and cruelly, that allows Yaquis when needed to really blend in with Mexican immigration patterns, right? So when they're trying to lay low and to not be identified, um, especially, you know, when there's, you know, so when, when Pancho Villa is running around and shooting across the border, um, Yaquis are involved in that. And so that's a time when you don't want to stand up and yeah. be identified as Yaqui, right? You're suspect um, because you're, um, and there's also during the Mexican Revolution and there, there's a lot of illegal arms trafficking. Um, and uh, there's lots of Yaquis in Arizona who are uh, there, there's some who are engaged in trafficking arms illegally across the border, right? And so for other Yaquis who maybe are just trying to live their lives, you know, up in Phoenix, that's a time when they want to lay low, and it's really easy for them to just blend in with in with Mexican immigrants and in Mexican neighborhoods. Um, uh, I've, uh, you know, my, my wife grew up down in in Arizona, and I have a lot of friends down there, and. Um, right next to Tempe, which is where Arizona state university is, um, there's a small town called Guadalupe and most, or many Arizonans know it mostly as a, a, a Mexican American community. Uh, but what, what most of them don't know is it was actually a Yaqui community. It was a Yaqui town, um, which later then had a lot of uh, Mexican immigration as well. And it exists now as a trilingual English Yaqui Mexican, uh, community, um, But again, uh, that all happened in some ways because um, Yaki's were uh, often trying to blend in, uh, which is, you know, which is ironic and somewhat cruel that they're trying to blend in with the very people who they were trying to get away from, you know,
1: it's it's very fascinating. And also that, that trilingual community, I would love to go to and, and, and study and live uh, in, this reminds me of a couple of things. One in, in basic native American history, um, There seems to be many, many examples of both in the macro and micro levels of uh, white culture, European culture, thinking, and Spanish culture, if we're talking about uh, with the Aztecs in Mexico and in California, etc., that all indigenous people are the same, which obviously is not correct. But we see this... um, a little bit in some of your book, but then also the opposite. Whereas the government, although both, both cases and treatment tends to be negative and sad, but there are, um, indigenous people. Oh, but then there's also foreign indigenous people. So, um, number one. And number two, one thing that you've said that reminds me of indigenous people trying to fight in World War II in Virginia, they would go to draft boards. And uh, this happened in other places as well, but mainly in Virginia. And they were saying how um, oftentimes indigenous people were not allowed to join as indigenous. Oh, you're black because indigenous people uh, the the people of the time that were in charge thought that indigenous people were basically black and oh you have to go to uh maryland to go train with the black soldiers and there were some examples of indigenous people Mm. in virginia that could pass as white and entered the military as white and so it's a it's fascinating but kind of in a in a sad way um Now, one thing that you wrote in your book that I just I've read numerous times and I just really like the quote is the last two sentences in the end of your prologue. I'll go ahead and read it by examining by examining the lives of Chief Stick and Chavez, which we haven't talked a little bit about by. But by examining these two or three um, tribes and others who follow in this book, we can imbue history with empathy. This empathy in turn can enlighten the complex and all too often cruel past in which our own lives are based. I mean, it's a simple passage, but it, it's so deep to me. Could you talk about that a little
0: bit? Yeah, so yeah, that's the, how I ended the prologue. Um, and I, in, I included in this prologue, it's yeah, it's this, I included the kind of a, a quick biographical vignette of this Cree, um, grant chief stick, and then a short story about, um, a man named Lucas Chavez, a Yaki. And I kind of just use them as a lens through which to kind of really quickly run through these two transnational histories. Um, because, well, I was very concerned, you know, as you're doing a comparative, the more you're, the more comparison you're doing, uh, the more that you're kind of zooming the geography out, you start to kind of lose the humanity and the people and the names and faces and you sometimes lose the sense that these are actual people Um, you know, instead of just Crees crossing the border you know, it's this one specific family who had a young child or something and so I, I opened the book with this prologue as a way to, before we jumped into all the really complex comparative borderlands history and so forth to pause and say or to demonstrate that here's two examples of some real people's lives. And let's keep these names and ex- very intimate experiences in mind as we then, you know, race off through this really broad, um, complicated project. Um, it, it, I, uh, I had this, this book underwent many different revisions. And at one point I was rewriting the entire thing to um, have each chapter be uh, thematically organized. So a chapter about... Border crossing, and in which I would have Yakis and Crees, and comparing them constantly throughout, and I just lost all sense of narrative, and I lost I lost the people, right? Um, and so uh, I had that in mind as I was kind of finishing this last draft, and I had these two biographies, um, and I was like, oh, I don't know where to how to integrate these in, and I was like, oh, put, put them at the beginning, and I mean, as I said, you know, try to imbue this. Uh, with, with with some empathy and some compassion and some some real humanity, um, which I think what what all is what yeah, all sh- I history should.
1: Really do, enjoyed right? that that touched me, and it's not a complex thought. We do that, but just seeing it in those words uh, was wonderful. I um, I try to do that in teaching and in writing and in reading. How these people that we're reading and talking about are real people. They they felt. They loved. They hurt. They had family. Um, um, And they're really no different than you and I. And I wonder what history, I always do this, my head is in the clouds, but what will the history of the present look like in regards to this, Um, whether it be indigenous affairs or how we treat one another, et cetera, et cetera. Um,
0: Yeah, but but that's kind of the magic of studying history, isn't it, that you, you sit down with a book and you investigate some people who lived in some far-off time in a far-off place who seemingly you have nothing in common with, right? Um, but then you discover when you really strip away a lot of stuff, they are facing the same mm-hmm. human – it's yeah. the same human experience, right, that we face today. And, and I always tell my students that this is a real profound – thing to, to to learn how to think this way because as we go out in our lives and we meet people you know our new next door neighbors who moved in or uh, a co-worker we're constantly meeting people that we don't have things in common with and sometimes we struggle to understand them to understand not maybe not to agree with them but to at least understand why they believe what they believe um so that we can empathize with them right and studying history teaches us how to do that and i think it makes us better people better citizens i mean this i'm waxing a little (laughs) romantic here but um i I really do i think there's real power in how history um, changes how we interact with with absolutely
1: and this kind of leads into my last question how can we use your study uh, of these peoples and the borders involved with our present day humanity and border issues and unfortunately or fortunately that's been in our uh, political, cultural mind, uh, or maybe media mind for quite some time. Yeah. I, I'm not insinuating we should think one way or the other, as far as some of the questions presented, but they are people just like the people of the Yaqui and the, and the Cree and the Chippewa, et cetera. And so, yeah. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I started this, this project, I, well, I mean, one reason I was interested in it because, you know, borders and immigration were, like, I mean, they're, they're always a hot topic, right? It's something the country's always talking about. And and historically and contempt, contemporarily, I've thought that's where there's a lot of real compelling human stories unfolding that are important. Um, I didn't expect that, that refugees was going to be um, such a hot topic. And it's, its I mean, it's un- really unfortunate, actually, <laughs> that that these are still uh, really pressed. It'd be great that if um, I had published this book, and there was no need for anyone to be thinking about, um, you know, uh, refugees fleeing, uh, you know, horrible circumstances and and things along those lines. But but that, that is the world. Um, that's the world we lived in. So I mean that we live in now. Um, yeah, when you boil it all down, uh, my book and and a lot of other history books. Um, are talking about uh, vulnerable peoples talking about people on the margins mine specifically is talking about um some groups who kind of really fell through the cracks they because they were not conventional right they were indigenous they were indians but they were not american indians they were immigrants but they were not viewed the same or granted the same privileges as European immigrants, for instance, so that th- they fell between the cracks of Indian of existing Indian policy and immigration policies, and rather than sitting down to do the really challenging, granular, uh, complicated work of figuring out well what is a humane and acceptable policy that we could craft to to solve the crisis, uh, you know that that th- these Cree's are facing, uh, we didn't right? Um, I mean, beyond kind of the prejudice and resistance, a, a lot of what unfolded in Montana, for instance, was simply the United States ignoring them. Um, and I mean, I would hope that by reading through this history and thinking about it, um, it would cause uh, many of us to pause as we hear, I mean, you you know, go, go to the, this 24-hour news cycle, and it's constantly turning over, and there's always some new crisis and some new that everyone is uh, concerned about or, or worked up about and uh and we we rarely pause and take much time to think really critically about these things um and so um, i'm i'm convinced that there are people today who due to the the really complex difficulty of finding a solution for them maybe not even just as you know immigrants or asylum seekers caravans and you know refugees even aside from the, the, the bo- people that are crossing borders, there are other people in society who are suffering uh, tremendously at the moment. And one of the reasons that they're suffering and have been suffering for so long is because the solutions or the processes to find solutions for them are gonna take a lot of a lot of really hard work. And it's gonna t- take asking some really difficult questions. And we often just don't have the stomach for it. Um, and so I, I, w- I would hope that People who read this book are uh, encouraged to to pause and to um, think about uh, you know who is in their midst and maybe what kind of what peoples and their communities are falling through the cracks that maybe need to be t- given kind of some real special and unique attention. Maybe that's uh, maybe that's a dreaming a bit much, but. Um, as I'm thinking about, you know, kind of modern applications and things that, because uh, as I'm thinking about some future speaking engagements and pieces I'm working on, um, I think this is a, may, maybe one of the ways where I, I hope the book could have some kind of impact.
1: I uh, It might be dreaming, but uh, we set our standards high and we don't decrease them. Um, it does make me think about the present Uh, whether it be the border or even our community. As a high school teacher, I I see kids all the time in my middle class, 92% white community, uh, whether they're white or or not, it it sort of doesn't matter, but that are falling through the cracks on the individual way. But it makes me think about groups of people as well who are falling in the cracks and and who is falling through the cracks now. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation uh, that, Uh, I think our listeners and myself will want to jump into more of this, both the Yaqui, the Cree Chippewa, but then also transnational uh, comparative studies. I'm looking forward to getting online and looking for books that are coming out by the one person that you've um, mentioned who uh, has a, a book that's already been published. But I do want to ask you, what is next or upcoming with your writing or research?
0: yeah, well, um, yeah, I run, I run this uh, research center here at BYU, the, the Charles Red Center for Western Studies, So a lot of my time is spent running the center, and I host a lot of events. Um, I run a podcast of my own called "Writing Westward," where I, I kind of actually do this exact thing that we're doing right now, uh, interviewing authors about books. Um, I run a digital history program called Intermountain Histories. It's a website. an app you can download and it kind of curates these little micro histories of places in the intermountain west um and then uh moving forward i have an anthology uh, an edited collection of essays coming out about mormons and indians that should hopefully be out sometime next year Um, i'm working on a new anthology about um, the 21st century west and kind of new histories of like what's happening uh now in the west and um somewhere down the road when i eventually get to it. Um, I'm working on a, a book about kind of a, a deep uh, cultural environmental history about um, Western landscapes and specifically kind of the, the most rugged wilderness Western landscapes and what kind of ideas people have brought to those regions. Why have people come out to, you know, the most rugged of places and what kind of experiences have they come out there to have you know, taking this back for, back to, you know, indigenous traditions all the way up to the present to um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm big into trail running and I've um, you know, friends who do, you know, hundred mile races up in the craziest of mountains. And um, I was asking like, what is wrong with these people? And like, like, like what, what, what are they trying to get from this? And I realized like, you know, people have been, have been coming out to wild Western places for a long time for some, very specific experiences. So um, that'll be quite a long ways off, but that's, the, that's probably the next monograph book project I'll do. Okay. Well,
1: great. I do want to mention your website. Uh, listeners can learn more about you and what you're doing on uh, www.bwrensink.org. And it has been a lot of fun. And uh, to all our listeners, thanks for listening to the New Books in Native American Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Thank you. Thanks so much. And thanks for listening to New Books in Native American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.